Luxury is meant to be livable. Discover the new leather collection at Ashley with premium quality leather sofas, recliners, and more, all built to last. No matter how many spills, scuffs, or pet-related mishaps come its way, the leather collection at Ashley is made with the durability you need for the whole family. Shop the new leather collection at Ashley and find chairs starting at $499.99 and sofas at $599.99. Ashley, for the love of home. Welcome to Meet the Press Now. I'm Kristen Welker in Washington, where the White House, Congress and national security officials are all grappling with both the domestic and international political fallout from the U.S. shooting down a Chinese spy balloon this weekend. We will have the very latest on that story in just a moment, including new reporting from NBC News about edits being made to the China portion of tomorrow night's State of the Union address. But first... A global emergency response and rescue operation is underway. These are live pictures out of Turkey that you are seeing right now, where you can see workers combing through some of the rubble, presumably looking for potential survivors. This after two massive earthquakes hit Turkey and Syria overnight. Images out of the region today show damaged towns, collapsed buildings, and people, including young children, being rescued from the rubble. The death count has now surpassed 3,000 people across the two countries. More than 10,000 more have been injured. We expect those numbers to rise amid ongoing search and rescue operations. This was the strongest quake Turkey has felt in over 80 years. 7.8 magnitude. It hit just after 4 a.m. while many were asleep. The epicenter of the quake was only 20 miles from a major city that is home to over 2 million people and just 30 miles from Syria's northern border. Another 7.5 magnitude quake hit nearby just a few hours later. Turkey's vice president said there have been 145 aftershocks so far. This terrifying footage shows the moment this morning when a building collapsed. Turkish President Erdogan said today that more than 45 countries have offered aid, including the U.S., the U.K., and Russia. President Biden expressed his sympathies for those lost, and U.S. officials announced they are sending two teams of nearly 80 officials to support the search and rescue efforts. NBC's Molly Hunter is in London with the very latest on this just devastating earthquake. So, Molly, what is the very latest from the ground from Turkey and Syria? What are you hearing? What's the level of destruction? Yeah, Kristen, I think what we have to keep in mind and what you said in your intro just now, it is still absolutely search and rescue. We are still in that window where search and rescue teams are on the ground, are mobilizing to spread out across all of the affected areas. And it is a huge affected area, as you mentioned, both in southwestern, uh, sorry, the southern uh, tip of Turkey right there and northwestern Syria, really devastated areas on both sides. Now, according to Turkish officials, as you mentioned as well, help is coming in from all over the world, from European countries, from the U.S. as well. And we're talking people are sending everything from boots on the ground, medics, rescue dogs, aircraft, transport mechanisms to get people around, because that is going to be one of the main challenges, Kristen, is actually getting these search and rescue teams to some of the most devastated rural areas in time. In these 24 hours, we know that minutes and seconds uh, count when you are looking for survivors. As far as actual numbers, uh, kind of to quantify the devastation, Turkish officials have told us three thousand buildings, 3,000 structures on the Turkish side have been destroyed, and that is just on one side of the border. Molly, one of the most devastating aspects of this is that this happened overnight. 
while people were asleep. How is that impacting the efforts to find people, the search and rescue efforts, which, as you just mapped out, are already so complicated? Kristen, that's right. So many people at home. And I think that's why we are starting to get a death toll so high so early, because they could look, officials and authorities could look at these apartment buildings. And there's some really big kind of infrastructures that are very fragile, poorly built, not prepared for uh, something like this. And you could look at how many apartments, how many families were actually living inside. The other really devastating thing we have to think about, not only was everyone home, Kristen, but also it's winter. It is freezing. And aid organizations in that area on the Turkish side of the border, Kristen, for example, 3.6 million Syrian refugees, the most uh, that any country hosts anywhere in the world, are living in that area in southern Turkey. And they were already living in makeshift tents, makeshift camps. Uh, fragile infrastructure that certainly was not prepared for an earthquake and not even prepared for kind of freezing temperatures and the snow that they're expecting tonight. Mm. And this was already the region in Syria, at least, that has been ravaged by the Syrian civil war, which has been going on now for more than a decade. I mean, does this area even have the infrastructure to deal with such a crisis? That is what you are hearing from humanitarian uh, aid organizations today, is they are so worried. They were already worried about the 4 million people, displaced people in that area in northwestern Syria before this, uh, looking down winter, uh, down the barrel of a long, cold winter, how these people were going to survive. So, yes, there are some um, kind of organizations, like, of course, the Syrian White Helmets that we are very familiar with, who are very good at emergency response because of all the airstrikes, for example, in that region. But there is not the infrastructure to start rebuilding or to start housing people even temporarily in that area, Kristen. Oh, it is just such a devastating story. Molly Hunter, thank you so much for your reporting. We really appreciate it. I'm joined now by Bob Kitchen, Vice President of Emergencies and Humanitarian Action at the International Rescue Committee. Bob, thank you so much for joining me. I understand that your teams have been working in the cold, working out of their cars throughout this day. What is the very latest on the efforts by your teams to try to access people and try to save lives there? Thanks for having me. We've spent the last 18 hours confirming the safety of our own staff. As you said, we've had staff working outdoors in the cold as the snow comes, sitting in the cars trying to keep their laptops and cell phones going to be in touch with us. Uh, and it's only in the last few hours we've been able to confirm uh, the safety of all of our staff. Our attention now turns to keeping our health centres open and the aid flowing to the many hundreds of thousands of people who've been affected by this crisis. And we're obviously just less than 24 hours out from this earthquake hitting. What are the most urgent, immediate needs right now of people on the ground? Well, we're only 24 hours out from the first earthquake. The second mm. earthquake hit 12 hours later. And as you said earlier, the many aftershocks have kept the population in a, a state of real fear. So the days to come will be trying to find shelter for the hundreds of thousands who have lost their homes. Uh, we hear that people are moving into mosques and schools um, to try and find warmth from the sub-zero temperatures that are being experienced across the region. From then, it's trying to find ways to feed people, get money into people's hands so they can buy their own food, and then, of course, stabilize the people who have been injured by the destruction that we've seen. Mm. The Biden administration, one of several governments around the globe that is sending teams to help. Do you feel as though the international community is mobilizing in an adequate way or is more needed? 
Well, it's going to come in phase. So sending in search and rescue teams is critically important. The, the hours and minutes now are really, really uh, the, the most important thing we need to focus on, finding people under the rubble. But then very quickly, time, uh, our focus needs to change on the people who are left behind, uh, alive but injured and are, uh, are now without homes, without income uh, and really need our support. Prior to 24 hours ago, the humanitarian appeal was only 50% funded, a huge amount still left to be donated to keep people alive. Almost 16 million people across uh, Syria urgently in need of humanitarian aid, and half of those are in northwest and northeast Syria that have been impacted by this earthquake. So it's it's only worse now today than it was yesterday. Mm. And of course, as I was just discussing with Mali, the part of Syria that was impacted by this earthquake has been dealing with the Syrian civil war for years. Talk about the way that the infrastructure is complicating efforts uh, to save lives, to rescue people, to rescue those who are still alive. So the IRC has been on the ground in Syria and Turkey for 12 years since the beginning of the conflict. We have more than a thousand very brave Syrian staff and partner organizations working up until yesterday, providing support to the many people displaced and affected by the war. Many of those are now going to be turning their attention to the aid effort, helping those affected by the earthquake. Getting commodities in and around Syria was already very difficult. It's going to be even more complex with border closures, um, damaged roads. But we know earthquakes don't uh, respect international borders, so we, we need to push forward ourselves. And of course, many of the people across the border in southeast Turkey are refugees. How does this impact their efforts that are already so difficult to rebuild their lives? Well, for the many refugees that Turkey continues to extend a welcome to, they've been in rented accommodation, trying to make ends meet, um, trying to, to make the best of their life while they're outside of the country seeking asylum and safety. That starts, it doesn't start again, but it starts afresh now as they have to find new homes, uh, new ways to earn income, assuming that the, the job's been interrupted. So the work has, it's never been easy, but it's got more difficult now because of this earthquake. Well, we really appreciate your joining us to explain all of that to us and just to give us the picture of this incredibly dire aftermath of these earthquakes. Bob Kitchen, thank you so much. And we will, of course, continue to follow this story and bring you any major developments as we learn them. But we do want to turn now to the fallout from the Chinese spy balloon over the U.S. Right now, the military is searching for the remnants of the balloon off the coast of North Carolina after it was shot down on Saturday by a single missile fired by an F-22. A senior Biden administration official says it was the only workable way to bring down the balloon safely. China insists the balloon was a civilian airship used for studying weather and is accusing the U.S. of indiscriminate military force to bring it down. But a senior U.S. official pushed back, saying the U.S. is confident this balloon purposefully flew over the U.S. and that it was trying to monitor sensitive military sites. Still, U.S. officials so far haven't said much about why they think China took this provocative step, what specific intelligence they were trying to learn, or how much information they may have gleaned. The White House, meanwhile, is planning to give a classified briefing to the Gang of Eight, the group consisting of congressional leaders and the heads of the House and Senate Intel Committees as early as tomorrow. It comes as Republicans in both the House and Senate are criticizing the Biden administration's handling of this situation.
Yeah, well, you know, clearly the president taking it down over at the Atlantic is sort of like the quarterback, sort of like tackling the quarterback after the game is over. Um, the the satellite had completed its mission. This should never have been allowed uh, to enter the United States, and it never should have been allowed to complete its mission. Well, I think the dereliction of duty begins with this. Why not on Tuesday or Wednesday? You know people are going to see this. At some point, you're going to have to disclose it, and that is the beginning of dereliction of duty. And the second is, we have to act swiftly on these things. And what are we going to do the next time this happens? Are we going to allow it to fly through here again uh, and, and, and shoot it down once again to the East Coast? Joining me now is NBC's Ali Vitale on Capitol Hill, a New York Times Pentagon correspondent, and an NBC News contributor, Helene Cooper. Thanks so much to both of you for being here and bringing us your great reporting. Ali, let me start with you on Capitol Hill. You heard the outrage there from Republican lawmakers, but they haven't gotten the full briefing yet. Take us inside the thinking on Capitol Hill, this strong reaction that we are seeing as they await this briefing where they will undoubtedly get a fuller picture of what happened. Yeah, Christian, they haven't gotten the briefing yet, but that's not to say that they haven't been given information. Last week, as Congress was leaving town on Thursday, a flyout day around here, staff for Gang of Eight members were given a classified briefing on the balloon, at that point still flying over the continental United States. And now, as soon as this week, we do expect another briefing in various capacities. There'll be, for example, an all-senators briefing on the issue of China that was previously set up. That's supposed to be for next week, but it could be that there's greater motivation and urgency to do that briefing sooner. So we could see that move to this week potentially. And then, of course, that briefing for the Gang of Eight also expected in the coming days. And a lot of inf- a lot of people up here just trying to get more information. I will say, though, a senior administration official stressed to us that they were trying to keep relevant members of Congress apprised of what was going on with this over the course of the last few days and over the weekend. Nevertheless, you know lawmakers, they want as much information as they can possibly get, and certainly they are demanding it. Republicans all aligned around the talking points that they think that this balloon should have been shot down sooner. Democrats instead taking the tack that they just want to know why more people were not informed more quickly until these images started popping up and frankly until our colleague Courtney Kuby reported them in the first place. Yeah, really good point. Uh, Helene, let me turn to you on that. Walk us through what the Pentagon is saying about the timing of this decision to shoot down the balloon and why it was handled in the way that it was. Uh, Hi, thanks for having me. Well, the Pentagon continues to insist that uh, it would the the debris field from shooting down the balloon over the continental United States was uh, their risk assessment, they say, was uh, that it didn't make sense to do so. They say several Pentagon officials have said to me that they took took steps to make sure to feed false information towards this uh, balloon so that even though, for instance, when it's hovering in Billings, Montana, very close to Maelstrom Air Base, where uh, the United States uh, stores its intercontinental ballistic missiles, is one of the three Air Force bases in the country that has these, um, uh, that they took steps to mitigate that the Chinese would not be getting any usable intelligence from that. Uh, when you start getting, though, into the question of why did they take so long to disclose it? Why was it that the first announcement of this didn't come until after Courtney Kuby's scoop? 
you're getting into sort of almost, I think, this culture of secrecy that we have within the Defense Department um, and the Biden administration as well. Their first inclination is to see what they need to do to, you know, mitigate the uh, potential harm to American national security. They will say that they were rushing to figure out what to do about that. They're, they're not thinking about announcing it. And I think, I, I think in some ways they, they lost sight of the fact that this is a balloon that people could see up in the sky. And so being staying, it made no sense to stay as quiet about this as they did. They say they had every intention of announcing it, but they still didn't announce this until a day after there was a ground stop at Billings Airport. So so it's it's it, it kind of befuddles many people why this took so long to get out. Yeah, it's really important analysis. The idea that it, it, as they tried to mitigate these risks, they may have lost sight of the bigger picture. Helene, let me just follow up with you because, of course, we know there are these reports that there were three different balloons that entered U.S. airspace during the Trump administration. Now you have former President Trump denying that. You have Trump officials saying they don't recall that. What is the Pentagon saying? What do we actually know about what happened, understanding that this balloon was in U.S. airspace longer than any other that U.S. officials are aware of? On, on that, uh, uh, General Glenn Van Herc, who is the head of United States Northern Command, the guys who do NURAD and all of that, uh, said during a press conference this morning that the intel was there but that officials didn't realize it was there. What other officials have told me is that this, uh, these incidents were classified as part of the old Pentagon UFO program, uh, unidentified aerial phenomena, where they, uh, these are these programs that vacuumed up all of this intelligence about all these things that are in the sky. And it's only in recent, you know, the last two years that the United States and the military has taken pains, uh, to sort of declassify some of this information and to really look at all of this intelligence that they had. So it's a question of if they had it, but they didn't know that they had it at the time. Um, you know, but it's also not for, you know, the, the idea that you have Trump administration officials saying they weren't told. It's kind of hard to imagine how they are demanding to be told by Biden officials what was going on when they were in charge. Mm. So it's I think for the Trump people, it's kind of a tricky road for them to hope. Mm. Ali, let me go back to you, because, of course, all of this is happening as the big news event this week yeah. will be the president's State of the Union address tomorrow night. To what extent is this looming large? We have reporting three sources who are familiar uh, with the speech that the president his team, they are making some edits. Of course, there's always been a China section. Of course, it has always yeah. included some tough language. Um, but they obviously are going to respond to the breaking news developments of these past few days. Yeah, and that seems natural and somewhat predictable, especially given the way that this has really dominated headlines over the course of the last four or five days. And certainly it's something that a lot of people up here on Capitol Hill are talking about. But it comes against the backdrop, too, of this is a Congress, Republican-controlled, but in bipartisan fashion, they did create a new select committee for this Congress that's specifically focused on the threats from China. So there was already going to be a heavy China focus during this Congress, and it would make 
makes sense that that would be echoed by President Biden in these State of the Union remarks. I do think, though, that it's going to be just one of many points, and you know this so well, Kristen, having covered so many of these, too, that this is something that's going to be used from the president's perspective to use this very large platform of millions of Americans tuning in to talk not just about foreign policy threats, but also the things that they've accomplished over the course of the last two years as he prepares to look ahead to a potential run in 2024. Yeah, exactly. All right. A pretty complicated backdrop. Ali and Helene, thank you for your great reporting. Appreciate it very much. Coming up, much more on those ballooning tensions with China. I'll talk to a retired admiral about what happens next now that U.S. officials are working to recover and investigate the balloon debris. Plus, my interview with the top Democrat on the House Intelligence Committee as lawmakers in Congress press the White House for answers. You're watching Meet the Press now. Caesars Sportsbook is the only sportsbook app with Caesars rewards. That means win or lose, every bet brings you closer to the types of perks only Caesars can offer. Like hotel stays at over 50 iconic destinations, bonus bets, daily profit boosts, tickets to the game, dining, and so much more. Whether you're a new or existing customer, Caesars Sportsbook is always rewarding. Must be 21. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Caesars Sportsbook. Don't just spectate, participate. For more than a decade, Comcast has been committed to bridging the digital divide and connecting millions to affordable high-speed internet. But the barriers to get connected go well beyond affordability. Through Project Up, Comcast is committing $1 billion to reach millions with digital skills training, resources, and opportunities needed to succeed in a digital world. Project Up, building a future of unlimited possibilities. Learn more at comcast.com slash project up. Welcome back. We are learning more about the Chinese balloon shot down on Saturday. A U.S. general says the balloon was 200 feet tall with a payload that weighed more than a ton. And National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan says shooting the balloon down over water gave the military a better opportunity to recover the wreckage than if it were shot down over land. Listen. It will take some time and people, all of us, including myself, will have to be patient as we do the recovery uh, and do the exploitation. But we have already been able to learn uh, a fair amount about the capabilities and the tradecraft of this balloon because we were able to monitor it through multiple different means as it traversed the United States. Joining me now is Admiral James Stavridis, former NATO Supreme Allied Commander and an NBC News Chief International Analyst. Thank you so much, Admiral Stavridis, for joining us. Really appreciate it. It's my pleasure always. I want to follow up with what we just heard there from Jake Sullivan. What kind of intelligence do you think uh, that China can collect with a surveillance balloon like that? And what can we glean from shooting it down and recovering the wreckage? Yeah, I think that's the right way to approach this is to think what are the trade-offs in that regard? And I would surmise that in the end, we are going to get more intelligence than we gave up. And that's because low Earth orbiting Chinese satellites already have pretty good analysis of us. They're tracking us on social media. They have many, many sources of data and intelligence. This would have added to their picture. But look what we got. We have a chance to listen, to watch the communications between this uh, Chinese spy balloon, its mechanisms, 
to the satellite, back to China. We got to monitor all that for three days. And then it drops in the water, only 47 feet of water, which is nothing. And the U.S. Navy, I'm proud to say, as an admiral, is going to go down, find that thing. We'll bring it up. We'll really take it apart. And in the end, I think we'll end up uh, getting a net positive amount of intelligence out of this entire episode. Admiral, there are a number of people who are wondering why the U.S. wasn't able to, in some ways, intercept the channels of this balloon earlier when it was first detected over U.S. airspace. Do there need to be discussions about improving technology so that that is a possibility, so that the option is not shoot it down when it's over water and wait for that to happen? Absolutely. And let's recognize that the whole dirigible airship balloon technology itself is changing significantly. We don't know yet what the skin of that balloon was capable of doing. It might have had the ability to be a communications relay. It might have included solar panels for power. Um, we are going to learn an awful lot more. And then what we're going to do, Kristen, is reverse engineer all of that and be more prepared the next time this comes, because I assure you, this is not the last trip by balloon over the United States by China. And, you know, not the last. And it seems like it wasn't the first. We know that there was one during the Biden administration. There's reporting there were three during Trump. Former President Trump has disputed that. And some of his top officials say they don't remember uh, three balloons entering U.S. airspace. Important to point out, this is the longest a balloon was in U.S. airspace. But I guess the question is, given that, do you see this as an escalation by China? Uh, I think that what we have seen is a pretty direct signal to the United States of displeasure, um, really about a couple of things, one of which is the agreement the United States just signed with the Philippines to open bases in the northern Philippine islands, specifically on the island of Luzon. Secondly, a new Marine Corps base, first new Marine Corps base in 70 years, opening on Guam. And thirdly, as this visit approached with the uh, Secretary of State, Tony Blinken, in the background, the Chinese are hearing discussion of another visit, a visit to Taiwan by the new Speaker of the House, Kevin McCarthy. So, yes, I think this was an escalation and very probably a signal to the United States of displeasure in all three of those areas. Well, I'm glad you said that because I was going to ask you about the U.S.'s planned expanded footprint in the Philippines. Um, so just to be very clear, you think that was part of the calculation by China? You don't think this was a mistake, for example? I think there are very few deep coincidences in uh, the game of geopolitics. And the idea that uh, this balloon would suddenly appear uh, and float across the United States two days before Tony Blinken's visit and in the immediate aftermath of the announcement of those new bases in northern Philippines, plus the announcement of the Marine Corps. I think it, it appears to me unlikely that that's a coincidence. We may never know with certainty, but with a fair amount of experience assessing this over the years, I'd say it's a pretty good way to bet. Admiral, do you think that the U.S. should brace for China to retaliate? Or do mm. you think that China has gotten the message from the 
now delayed trip of the U.S. Secretary of State that tensions are mounting and that they're going to back down? I certainly hope it's the latter, but I would say in particular, for example, to young Navy commanders who are in command of destroyers conducting freedom of navigation patrols in the South China Sea, if I could uh, stand on a bridge wing with a young commanding officer and say to her, hey, be on the front end of your game here, because China could do something quite provocative. Certainly their commentary following the shoot down, which in my view is preposterous. I mean, the, the balloon had just passed through our sovereign airspace. We had every right under international law to shoot it down. But China made some pretty dark comments. So I would say to our aviators, our mariners who are forward and close to China, now's a good time to be very, very alert. Okay, some powerful words there. We will leave it there. Admiral James DeVritis, thank you so much for your perspective. We always appreciate it. Up next, I'll talk to the top Democrat on the House Intelligence Committee about what he knows and the potential for more escalation in tensions between the U.S. and China. You're watching Meet the Press now. Welcome back. There's a group of eight lawmakers in Congress, the Gang of Eight, that are among the top U.S. officials on matters of vital national intelligence. It includes the top members on both the House and Senate Intel Committees, as well as House and Senate leadership. The White House says it began briefing the Gang of Eight staff about the Chinese surveillance balloon last Thursday as the U.S. military was getting ready to shoot it down. Today, NSC coordinator John Kirby told reporters he was not aware of any intention to return the debris to Beijing. Joining me now, ranking member of the House Intelligence Committee and a member of the Gang of Eight, Congressman Jim Himes. Congressman, thank you so much for joining me this afternoon. Really appreciate it. Thanks for having me, Kristen. Let's start with this Chinese balloon. Do you know when you expect to get a briefing on the balloon? And I wonder, Congressman, if you can tell us, what are your top questions? Well, um, I've had an opportunity now that I've been in Washington today to look at some of the intelligence that was uh, gathered about the balloon. It's not necessarily anything I can get into in any detail, but, um, you know, suffice it to say that this is not technology that is that is new to us. We have observed this sort of technology before. We actually have technology like this. We uh, are not uh, quite so brazen as to fly it over uh, another country's airspace. But um, what's happening right now, which is pretty interesting, is that, you know, because we were able to observe this balloon, you know, get a look at its characteristics, uh, you know, how it receives information, what it's transmitting. And now that we actually have it in our possession, uh, we'll be in a position, I think, to learn a lot more about Chinese capabilities. Uh, what can they do? But also who helped them build this? Uh, who's, whose chips are in this thing? And all sorts of stuff that, um, you know, because of the uh, brazenness or the mistake that the Chinese made, we'll now be able to learn. Congressman, just to be very clear, because we're anticipating the administration will brief the full gang of eight. When will that actual briefing happen or has it already happened? Uh, it has not happened yet. There was an attempt at the end of last week to get that meeting together, but people were scattered to the wind, so it didn't happen. Um, I'm not sure what the answer is to your question. I do know that there's a lot of questions. Look, there's a lot of hyperventilating about this, but there's actually some really good questions. You know, wh wh why did the administration choose when they did to inform the public? Um, you know, this is not the kind of thing you can easily keep secret since you can sort of see this thing with a you know good pair of binoculars. Um, so, there, so all of us have questions, um, but uh, uh, I'm not exactly certain when the, when the briefings will occur. Do you do you expect a briefing and do you want a briefing this week? 
Yes, we do. We do. Again, there, there are lots of outstanding questions. I've probably had a few more answered than most of my colleagues have because I've been into this gift to look at some of the information that is there. But yeah, no, there's a lot of very legitimate questions about how this week played out. Uh, you know, where exactly did the balloon go? Did the Canadians get a look at it too? If you think about Alaska and Montana, there's a whole lot of Canada in between. Um, you know, what was, our, what was our communication with the Canadians if in fact it went over their airspace? You know, all sorts of questions that, that we do need answered. Uh, and yes, they need to be answered this week. I want to follow up with your point about the information flow because it's our understanding that your staff was briefed on Thursday. Do you believe that your staff got adequate information? And did you learn about this early enough? Should you have known before the public became aware? Well, um, it's an, it, it, the question is a little more complicated than you think. You know, we have yet to have a meeting of the Intelligence Committee. I was just appointed to ranking member status on Wednesday or Thursday of last week. So we're sort of getting up to speed here. Um, I do know that some staff was briefed. I think it was pretty abbreviated. Uh, I think there's lots of members, including members of the Gang of Eight, who haven't been briefed. I do expect that the administration will, will have some kind of briefing in the next couple of days. Okay. Chairman Turner, your counterpart on the House Intelligence committee told Chuck yesterday that the administration lacks urgency, that this balloon should have been shot out of the sky the minute that the administration became aware that it had entered U.S. airspace. Do you agree with that assessment? Did the administration lack urgency here? Well, no, I don't. I don't. And we're hearing an awful lot of, um, you know, criticism uh, very early on. Uh, here's what we do know. We do know that the military advisors to the president advised that he not shoot it down um, as it penetrated Montana, at least. Uh, and part but of their concern was... Let me just challenge you briefly on that point, right? Because it entered Montana several days after it entered U.S. airspace. Not Why not shoot it down, for example, when it first got over the Alaskan airspace. Well, um, I was just about to get to point number two, which is that it is enormously valuable. Now, now, mind you, you make sure that it's not a weapons platform that presents any sort of threat. And then it's an enormously valuable opportunity to actually see the flight characteristics, the uh, radio emanations that come from this thing, what's aboard. We, we, we learn a lot by watching it. Now, I'll have the same question. I just, like some of my colleagues, don't necessarily have the conclusion that it was a lack of urgency. I need to know what, it, what was collected, what was the, you know, plus and minuses of shooting it down early rather than late. None of us know that right now. Um, again, this is not a weapons platform, so the ability to observe it without putting people at risk, I think, was an important uh, opportunity. Based on the information you've seen so far, do you know, does the U.S. have a sense of what its capabilities were? Um, you know, our intelligence community is pretty good. So without getting into details, I can tell you that we're not surprised by this technology, but we've never had the opportunity to actually look under a microscope uh, at the kinds of things that were aboard in that payload. And now we have that opportunity. That's another question that should be asked. You know, uh, a hard landing against a granite mountaintop is a very different proposition than recovering things that landed in the water. So again, these questions will be answered in the next day or two. Let me ask you about China's response. China is saying the U.S., quote, overreacted and seriously violated the spirit of international law and international practice. Some people are reading those words and say they're just words, that China's not actually going to retaliate. What's your assessment? Do you think that China's going to retaliate in some way? shape or form or do you think they're going to let 
their words stand for now. Well, look, it's 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 utter nonsense, right? I mean, if you want to if you want to talk about international law, let's not talk about the spirit of international law. Let's talk about the black letter of international law, which is that you don't get to fly military equipment over other people's country. Very clear violation on their part. Look, I wouldn't want to be the mission uh, commander uh, that in China that was responsible for flying this balloon. My guess is that it was probably inadvertent that it went over United States airspace. But no, they are the ones in the wrong here. And look, this is not a new thing. You'll recall that a number of years ago, uh, a, a P-3 Orion, a surveillance aircraft not operating in Chinese airspace, was dangerously appro approached by a Chinese fighter jet, ultimately resulted in the downing of that jet. They, the, the P-3 was disassembled, disassembled by the Chinese and given back to us in boxes. So, that, you know, they're, that I, don't, I don't take their criticisms all that seriously. Let's move on to classify documents. The Gang of Eight, according to uh, Chairman Turner, is also going to get briefed on the classified documents matter sometime this week. When exactly do you expect that briefing to happen and what do you hope to learn there? Yeah, my understanding is that we will be briefed towards the end of this week. And, and actually, as it happens, I was speaking to the director of national intelligence this afternoon, and I, 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 I passed on to her my interest in getting an update on the investigation that is happening. And of course, whatever risk, uh, preliminary assessments of risk the intelligence community might have provided about any uh, of these classified documents. Again, you know, we got to there's an awful lot of documents here. There's there's, you know, Mar-a-Lago. There's the Biden uh, 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 documents. There's Pence. You know, we need to know whether any of our intelligence assets have been put at risk by any of those documents that are out there in the wild. Congressman, President Biden's going to be delivering his State of the Union address tomorrow night amid some really tough poll numbers. What do you want to hear from him? And do you worry that the Chinese balloon, the classified documents matter, will really cast a cloud over his entire address? Here's, here's what I know. I know that American families at the kitchen table, the balloon might be an interesting story, an interesting footnote. What people really care about is jobs. They care about inflation. Jobs, remarkable job growth. Inflation is coming down. Fuel prices are coming down. Insulin now costs a maximum of $35. Prescription drug prices will be coming down. Investments in infrastructure, that's what I'm hoping the president will talk about because there's a remarkably good story to be told around all of those things that I think are more important to most Americans than balloons that are flying overhead. Very quickly, do you want President Biden to run for re-election? Is he the strongest person to represent the Democratic Party in 2024? You know, based on what I just told you, and if I had another two minutes, we could talk about other achievements of the Biden administration, I would tell you that if he does choose to run, uh, he will have a strong record to run on. Okay, Congressman Jim Himes, thank you very much for joining us on this very busy Monday. Appreciate it. And after the break, President Biden prepares to address the nation tomorrow night, as we just discussed, and he just fielded questions from NBC News about whether his State of the Union is changing in the wake of that Chinese spy balloon. More after the break. You're watching Meet the Press Now. Welcome back. Three people familiar with President Biden's State of the Union speech tomorrow night tell NBC News that parts of the address are undergoing edits in the wake of his recent incident involving a Chinese surveillance balloon traversing the U.S. But moments ago, when asked by our own Kelly O'Donnell at the White House if the situation has changed his speech or his foreign policy message overall, the president replied no. In addition to addressing tensions with China, the president is also expected to use this address to begin laying out his pitch for a second term, even though he has 
has yet to officially announce a 2024 re-election campaign. Joining me now from the White House is NBC's Mike Memoli. So, Mike, you and I have been working our sources. And essentially, the message is this. This China section has been written for quite some time. But obviously, it needs to be updated in some areas to reflect the developments over the past several days. Tell us what your sources, my sources, Carol's, Monica's sources <laughs> have been telling us. Yeah, that's right, Kristen. I mean, you know this so well, obviously, as we've covered this White House together the last two years. China has really been front and center in so many different ways for President Biden, not just obviously on a foreign policy basis, but also in shaping his domestic policy. How often have we heard him recall that trip that I took with him 12 years ago to the Tibetan plateau, where he had that long meeting with Xi Jinping when they were both vice president? Really has been such so foundational in the way in which Biden has approached his presidency. And so that's why aides are telling us there was always going to be a, a section of this speech devoted to the U.S.-China relationship. And part of the conversations that are now happening in the final hours are just how much to refine that to incorporate the developments over the last few days, especially in light of the heavy Republican criticism of how President Biden has managed the situation and in light of the politics. Remember, this new Republican House that just took office has created a select committee focused on the China-U.S. relationship, wanting to delve into it closely. As Republicans look at 2024, one area they really want to attack the president on is for not being strong enough on China. So that's really the backdrop against which his aides are, are, are crafting this section and want to make sure that it meets the moment, but also doesn't further inflame the situation. That's something they're also careful about, especially after Secretary of State Tony Blinken took that step of canceling his trip to Beijing just before he was due to leave. Uh, now, more broadly, though, you know as well as you've laid it out so well, the 2024 backdrop to this speech. Mm -hmm. I'm told by my sources that the president really wants to reconnect with those themes of his candidacy in 2020, those core promises he made to voters, and essentially lay out in this speech the ways in which he feels like he's delivered on all of them uh, and ways he's really rebuilt the foundation for growth in the future. Yeah, we will be paying close attention to the China section. But, of course, his tone tomorrow night. This is going to be his first time speaking to a divided Congress. Mike, I talked to Congressman Don Bacon earlier today who said he really hopes that he strikes a note of bipartisanship. But as you rightfully point out, this is all coming against the backdrop of 2024. So we'll be watching closely. Mike, thank you so much. And do not miss our special live coverage of the president's State of the Union address. It kicks off tomorrow night at 8 p.m. right here on NBC News Now. Chuck and I will have special post-State of the Union coverage and analysis starting at 11 p.m. We will be right back. You're watching Meet the Press now. Welcome back. The presidential primary trail may look different next year for Democrats. The DNC voted this weekend to make South Carolina their first presidential primary state just about a year from today on February 3rd. That's a Saturday if you'd like to mark your calendars right now. Next comes Nevada and potentially New Hampshire on February 6th. The race would then move to Georgia on February 13th and Michigan on February 27th. This all depends on some state level law changes, but at least at the moment, Democrats have signed up to boot Iowa and New Hampshire from their first in the nation status. DNC Chair Jamie Harrison rationalized the decision to change the status quo this morning. Take a look. Oh, we, 
Okay, we do not have that sound right now. We'll get to it. But joining me now on set is Mariana Sotomayor, congressional reporter for The Washington Post, former New York Democratic Congressman Joe Crowley, and Stephen Hayes, editor and CEO of The Dispatch. She's also an NBC News political analyst. Thanks to all of you for being here. Basically, Joe, let me start with you. Jamie Harrison said this. I'll read it. The calendar looks like the Democratic Party, and it reflects the diversity of America. For 50 years, Iowa and New Hampshire have been the one-two step as it relates to selecting the next nominee for the Democratic Party. We're just changing that. We're giving more people and more voices an opportunity to influence where we go as a party and where we go as a nation. What do you make of this move? It's very significant. Well, nothing lasts forever. Uh, Nothing is in stone. Uh, I think it is more reflective uh, of the diversity of the Democratic Party in terms of maybe South Carolina first. Uh, You still have New Hampshire up there in the top Top three, at least certainly top two. Uh, and so, I, you know, I, I think th- this will not have an impact on necessarily on, maybe on this uh, primary, but really in 2028, maybe more than in 2024. We don't expect maybe uh, as, as, as competitive a primary this go around. Stephen, what do you make of this move? Republicans in Iowa and New Hampshire are wasting no time joining Democrats who are crying foul with these moves. Yeah, New Hampshire Republicans in particular are using this against Democrats mm-hmm. in the state. I had Sununu on our podcast last week and asked him about it. And he said, our federal officials are doing nothing. They're sort of writing letters, shrugging their shoulders as they take away our first in the nation status. Shouldn't the two Democratic senators use their leverage with the Biden administration, given the close split in the Senate? And try to actually preserve the, the place. I think they're likely to get some, have, have some residents there up in New Hampshire for the Republicans. Mariana, this could be, for all of those reasons, potentially risky in the long run, even if it does in the next round of primaries uh, benefit states that helped President Biden win the White House. Yeah, you know, it's interesting when you quoted the DNC chairman, he's actually echoing something that a lot of us covering the Biden campaign were hearing from the Biden campaign even before the Iowa primary. They were saying, hey, regardless of what we see in Iowa, New Hampshire, where they knew they were doing very badly, ended up being the case, you know, we need more states that are reflective of the party yeah. that is more divorce, di- more diverse, excuse me. And we really did see that on the campaign trail. When we were not in Iowa, New Hampshire, there were more people of age range, of mm. different backgrounds that would show up for him. But something that a lot of Democrats are questioning is, okay, does this set a new standard, a precedent for any future president to say, oh, wait, but, you know, Georgia wasn't that great to me, so why don't we just flip the primary schedule around? That's something that I think there's a little bit of hesitancy to to moving forward. Yeah, and you think about how important those delegates can be in a general election, particularly in New Hampshire, which is a tough state and can make the difference in some very close races. The backdrop, of course, is the State of the Union address tomorrow night. Um, Joe Crowley, what do you want to hear from President Biden? What do you think he needs to do tomorrow night to have this be a bit of a reset, right? Because he's been dealing with the classified documents issue. He's now been dealing with the Chinese spy balloon, accusations that he wasn't strong enough. What do you think his charge is tomorrow night? Well, I think he will speak about China. I think he will be very tough about that as well, uh, reflective of where I think both Democrats and Republicans are at this point in time. There's no question that this incursion uh, in some respects is unprecedented in terms of its 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 you know bodacious nature you know up there in the sky where people can see it this is not like you know satellite imagery uh, or or stealth bomber or stealth stealth airplanes uh, and so I think this will be part of it I think we're going to hear more about his accomplishments uh, as much as maybe we here in the beltway know what was accomplished 
Um, I think the American people are, have, have yet to really materialize it themselves. You see him doing these events even before and after uh, the, uh, the State of the Union, where he's going out and talking about uh, the, the infrastructure bill. We've talked about the CHIPS Act. We've talked about the many things that they've accomplished, just to remind the American people where they are. So I think this will be you know, somewhat political in terms of laying out that strategy. Mariana, let's look at some of the recent polling, which is just so noticeable, that uh, came out today in the ABC News Washington Post poll. 62% say the president has not accomplished much during his time in office. What do you make of those numbers? Is it a failure of messaging? Is it a failure of uh, accomplishment? I mean, and of implementing what he has passed? Yeah, it really is fascinating because he has been doing these events, especially on the infrastructure bill, just going to places saying, look like we're, look what we're doing. We're cutting the ribbons. You're going to see things change here. Um, it's interesting to me, you know, during the midterms, a lot of these frontline Democrats in particular in the House side who represent these more rural areas who are seeing a lot of the benefits, they wouldn't necessarily mention Joe Biden. They would say, look what we were able to do and accomplish here in the House and the Senate with Democratic control. They wouldn't necessarily mention the president. And that personally for me is something that I'm curious about. Is that where the disconnect is? Because people aren't necessarily crediting the president for things that he signed into law. Yeah, those numbers are just staggering. You have to imagine. Imagine the White House is paying very close attention. Stephen, this is going to be his first address before a divided Congress. And in talking to lawmakers and Republicans, they're said to me they want to hear him strike a note of bipartisanship, that he did that during the prayer breakfast, for example. But then he has his campaign rhetoric right. where he takes aim at the quote unquote ultra MAGA Republicans, which really uh, moderates have said is offensive to them. Which Biden do you think we're going to get tomorrow? Yeah, I, I, I think we're, we're likely to hear him try to appear bipartisan, but probably also take some, some shots at the MAGA Republicans. I think what you're likely to hear from Republicans is this is not a president who hasn't done much. This is a president who's done too much, and he hasn't done it the way that he said he was going to do it. I mean, if you look at the, the, the finding from our own NBC poll a week and a half ago on unity, 23 percent of people polled said that President Biden had achieved the, or had, had, had success in unity, which was the theme of his inaugural address. Uh, I think Republicans will point that out and say he's not delivered on this. He hasn't governed in a bipartisan way. He hasn't uh, negotiated with us on things that from the very beginning of his presidency. I think that's much more likely to be the focus of Republicans as they respond to the speech tomorrow night. And, and Joe, what do you make of those eye-popping numbers? No, the numbers are interesting, especially uh, in, in terms of what has actually been accomplished. Legislation after legislation, some bipartisan, some less, uh, but it's still quite a record of accomplishment. I think it was reflective yep. in some degree in terms of the elections that took place. People thought Democrats were going to get blown out, and in the end, they didn't. Um, and I think that that was reflective of that as well. But there's certainly a lot that the president can talk about tomorrow. I think he's also going to use the opportunity to, uh, you know, introduce or recognize guests. And that'll help in terms of his uh, uh, talking about what he's accomplished so far this year. Uh, Stephen, we, we have to note, it's very interesting on the Republican side, we have new reporting that the Koch brothers are essentially looking to throw their money behind anyone other than Donald Trump. How could that shake up the Republican primary race, which is getting a little bit more crowded, not overly crowded yet? Yeah, I mean, it's, I, think it's, I think what you're looking at on the Republican side is a bloodbath. 
between mm-hmm. now and the, the eventual convention, not only at the presidential level, I think you are going to see hand-to-hand combat from Republicans in the Senate, Senate primaries, making sure that Republicans, you know, establishment Republicans, making sure that unelectable Republicans don't win nominations. There's going to be a ton of money. And I think some serious infighting among Republicans. The House remains to be seen if, how, how significant the Club for Growth Kevin McCarthy pact was that helped make him speaker. But at least at the Senate and the presidential level, ugly, I think. Mariana, we have about 30 seconds left. How big of a blow is that to former President Trump? You know, I, I think it's one group where you're seeing them literally put their money where their mouth is. Because privately, you hear so many Republicans saying, I think we should wait. I don't think it should be mm. Trump for all of these reasons. They're actually coming out there and saying, listen. If it's not Trump, we don't want it to be Trump, let's try and find someone else to kind of carry this party forward. All right. Well, it's all going to be very interesting. And tomorrow could be the unofficial kickoff to all of it. Thank you so much. What a great conversation, Stephen, Joe, and Mariana. And thank you for being with us this hour. I am back tomorrow with more Meet the Press Now. NBC News Now coverage continues with Hallie Jackson right now. Luxury is meant to be livable. Discover the new leather collection at Ashley with premium quality leather sofas, recliners, and more, all built to last. No matter how many spills, scuffs, or pet-related mishaps come its way, the leather collection at Ashley is made with the durability you need for the whole family. Shop the new leather collection at Ashley and find chairs starting at $499.99 and sofas at $599.99. Ashley, for the love of home.